The best things happen after dark. Nightclubs are the ultimate space for self-expression, escape, music, socialising and forgetting for a moment the outside world. They're a place to discover ourselves, find new friends and fall in love. As humans, we like to dance to a beat and there's nothing like a good night out. I'm Jodie Harsh. I'm a DJ, producer and occasional club promoter. I know how to tear up a dance floor and for this podcast, I want to explore with my guests how club culture and going out has shaped their identities and informed their work. I've got us the guest list and cue jump sorted, so we'll delve right into the hazy memory banks and hit the floor. This is Life of the Party. You know her voice from the airwaves and her beats from the DJ booth. She's a dance music authority. She started as a punter and has become a rave thrower, a festival owner, a podcaster, an equality campaigner, and now an author, not to mention a mum. She's a Pied Piper of fun, and she's something of a cultural barometer. She asked the nation if we're raving or behaving, and I couldn't do this podcast without having her on as a guest. Annie Mack, this is your life of the party. <laughs> what an intro, babe. That is really something. I wasn't Thank sure you. I wasn't sure whether to call you Annie Mac or Annie McManus because you're, yeah. you're you've sort of reverted to your real name oh, now. Oh god. Yeah, I have. It so my full name is Annie McManus. Um and because I was writing a book and doing this podcast, it kind of felt quite removed from the stuff that I'm known as for Annie Mac. So I thought, let's just bring bring my full name back and sure. kind of slowly revert to that. Sure. So you've um, written you've written a novel, Mother Mother. Yeah, I wrote a novel over the last couple of years. I've always wanted to. It's always been something I've wanted to do, and um, it's been so fun. Uh, like my job, as you know, is to play other people's music, and I love it. And there's j- obviously a real sense of creativity in that, and how you put music together in a meaningful way. But in terms of creating something from nothing. It was just such a rewarding process. Um, and, and, you know, I, in the same way that I can imagine it is to go into a studio and make a track where nothing existed and then you walk out and you have a piece of music, a body of work. Sure, because I was initially I was initially thinking that it's quite a different trajectory from what we're used to from you. But then I thought right. that your role has always, has always been telling stories in some way anyway. Mm. Yeah, I guess so. Definitely in, in radio and in music, also telling other people's stories as well. Um, but I mean, I, I kind of felt like I had to explain myself a bit when I, when I announced that I'd written a book, because I, I'm sure there was a lot of people being like, Hey, what about yeah. raving and behaving? Like, what, what about yeah. Walter? Are we still raving? Yeah. Can we still get on it? <laughs> like, so I was kind of like, had to explain to people my journey and, and the fact that I have a history in loving writing and, um, and I've always wanted to write. So I, I guess like. The, the the me behind all the raving behind that kind of public persona that's happened over the years is definitely someone that's always wanted to write a novel and, and I guess in the last few years I've just ha- finally had the headspace to do it yeah um, and also so, yeah. I guess books have the ability to sort of shift people's moods and make them think a little deeper and provide an escape from reality which is of course what a piece of music can do or a yeah. moment on a dance floor as well 100% yeah. it's all art it's all art like I got up this morning and tea was unloading the dishwasher my husband like listening to the tune that he'd made in the studio before and I had been upstairs right reading something that I'd written the day before and it's all that you kind of you have stuff that comes out of you and you're a kind of a conduit for these feelings and sometimes you need a bit of perspective then you go back and you listen to it or you read it and it's like okay wow that came out of me and sometimes yeah. you feel more like a messenger than yeah. a creator 
It sounds like a, I mean, it's obviously a very creative household. <laughs> a madhouse. There's <laughs> always something it's going on. It's pretty madhouse. Yeah. yeah. So you yeah, come yeah. from a musical family, right? And you played lots of instruments growing up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I always call us the ugly cores. Right. We, um, we had, we had, my sister was like the, the Maggie Simpson. She, she played the saxophone. She was the raver. She listened to pirate radio. My biggest brother was like really into the Smiths and the Pogues and Thin Lizzy and, and 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 kind of punk and rock. And he played a whole range of instruments, maybe like five or six, like really well. And then my other brother also played loads of instruments uh, and he ended up being the one in the rock band. And then I was, um, I played piano and guitar mainly and the mandolin. Oh, wow. Um, so random. Um, <laughs> but it, it's like a traditional Irish music yeah. instrument. Yeah, yeah. And then I kind of gave up when I was about 15 and I realized how deeply uncool it was. My teacher asked me to do a performance like a, of a song in the school assembly. And I was like, no, that's just not going to happen. That's, yeah. Was there always a party atmosphere in the, in the McManus house? Uh, not really. I don't know. It sounds so cheesy as, a, as an Irish, uh, as a kind of expat, like a misty eyed expat. But it, they're genuinely like it felt to me growing up in Ireland that music was everywhere. And it's it's kind of known for being a place where kind of music is part of the fabric of of how you live and it's 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 a very strong part of the culture irish people are all about storytelling and you know folk music is that and i guess music and poetry like it's just part of of growing up um it's taken very seriously um so everyone played musical instruments mm. so I, our, our house wasn't unique in that right, way right it was still full of you know there was four of us born within five years of each other so there was lots of you know slamming doors and moodiness and you know as you would imagine with four teenagers in a house sure, yeah and then you studied in belfast in the late 90s so is that where your love of cl- mm. your love of club culture first started creeping yeah. through that that's that's where i had my epiphany right no actually it's not i had my epiphany before i left for belfast i went to one club in dublin an infamous club called the temple of sound with my friends simon and keith and we went out and stayed out till about four in the morning and that's that's where i had you know everyone i think has their first clubbing kind of transformative experience but that's that's where that happened for me going in and experiencing this music you know on, on a proper sound system seeing this community of people making so many friends, uh, feeling like my life had changed. I think I lost about four pounds that night. It was when I was really into my weight, obviously, and being obsessed with that as a teenager. And I remember weighing myself the day before and then weighing myself the day after. And I was four pounds lighter the day from, after from dancing. I just sweated so wow. much. I remember what I wore. I remember I, it's a really vivid memory. And my most of my memory is just awful but yeah. it's it really sticks out that night and that 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 fed a bug basically right were you nervous mm. before you walked into a club for the first time do you remember how you felt walking into the your first nightclub space it was probably more excitement i can imagine than nerves uh, i i kind of i'd been ready for this moment well before but my parents were pretty strict actually you know i was 17 and I was allowed to stay out till kind of 4 in the morning but i'd been trying a lot before then and i was always the person who like my my sister was um, my brother used to just be like oh my god Annie like you need to get better at lying because I was so bad at lying and I you know I'd be picked up from my friend's party house party and my dad would pick me up and I'd be like everybody was doing this thing called speed (laughs) and my dad my dad would be like crashing the car and my sister's like just don't 
tell them things, Annie. Like, just yeah. shut up. Like, but I was always very open in that way. And, you know, they went away and I had a big house party and the house got trashed. And so I was always kind of very, very much into the idea of fun and pursuing that fun. Um, and a part of me going to Belfast was, I guess, a rebellion against feeling restricted in my teens and just wanting to go and and have total freedom to do sure. exactly what I wanted. Yeah. And then you got involved in the club Shine in Belfast. Yeah. yeah. Tell yeah, me about that. Yeah. Really legendary place. So it was it was in the basement of the Queen's University Students Union. So I went to Queen's, I studied English literature there. And um it was this big dark square hall. It was a legendary venue for many, you know, it was a music venue, lots of bands played there, but on Friday nights and I think on Saturday nights, sometimes they had Shine. And Shine was, um, there was two main clubs in Northern Ireland, Lush in Kelly's in Port Rush and Shine in Belfast. Lush was a bit more mainstream, I'd say, in terms of the DJs they booked. It was more trance music, it was that kind of thing. Shine was more hard, tough, unrelenting techno music. Residents were Andrew Weatherall, um, Green Velvet came and played a lot. Stuart and Ord from Slam in Glasgow came and played a lot. Um, so th- there was, you know, a- an amazing array of people that came from all over the world. And it was the stop. It was an international, you know, stop for DJs to come when they were when they were touring the world and were touring Europe. So I just started going there. And my one of my English lecturers at the time, a, a guy called Steve from London, he, he, he was something to do with it. So I started going there, became really, really into that. And just like I lived with a load of girls. None of them were into it. I used to just go on my own and meet people there. And soon, as you do when you start going to a club regularly, you feel like you've got a family. Mm. You know? And it's this amazing secret that no one else knows about. And it's your place and your kind of... Your community. Your, your community. Yeah. And I remember it so well. I used to like buzz about, like just going from person to person to person to person, making friends, having chats. Like I couldn't stop moving around, um, chatting to people and making friends. And it was really low budget. You know, it was, you know, it was very... Uh, there was no frills. There was no production. It was just a trestle table on a stage. Yeah. Like it was and, and dark it darkness was basically. People and music. Exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. Back to basics. And after the first year of of going there and kind of getting to know them and started handing out flyers for them and um, then I started working for them. I started stamping wrists at the door, and um, and that then kind of got promoted to being the person who stood at the back door where the DJ, the door of the green room where the DJs yeah. came in and out of, not letting anyone in there. Um, and that promoted to then being, you know, allowed in the green room and hanging out and having drinks and just like getting to know people. So you just kind of became a trusted member of of, of the of the working family behind Shine. And there was a night when DJ Sneak played. And I remember I was right underneath the stage and I had, I felt awful. I had like tonsillitis. I just didn't want to be there. I was just really feeling sorry for myself. I was sat on this stool and um, he played You Don't Know Me by Armand Van Helden. And I remember watching this kind of, I don't know, this kind of wave, this surge of energy go through the crowd and this kind of this wave of noise, this roar of appreciation. And it was a brand new track then. People didn't know it. It wasn't a familiar thing. Uh, And I remember at that moment feeling like he, what he has, what he does is like, I want to do it. Mm. That was the first, I'd seen DJs loads, but that was the first time I thought, I want to do this. I want to be able to do this. And then 
in my third year I bought a pair of decks off my friend Mickey Murphy um really crap old belt driven decks and a Gemini scratch master mixer and uh, proceeded to spend the whole summer on the dole learning how to mix wow um, that's where it started that's where it started yeah, yeah so, so Belfast really is responsible for everything for me when it comes to my my career in dance music did yeah. you spend time in any other cities before you settled in London I did. I had a boyfriend actually who lived in Glasgow. He went to Glasgow School of Art. So I used to travel over there a lot on the ferry and go see him. And we used to go to the Arches. Oh, um, yeah, of course. And we went to, um, oh my God, how have I forgotten the name of it? Sub Club. We went to yeah, Sub Club a yeah, couple of yeah. times. The Arches has closed, hasn't it? Yes. Yeah. RIP the Arches. Incredible place. Yeah. So I, I had experienced Glasgow clubbing. Uh, which was quite similar to Belfast in terms of like energy and rowdiness. And um, so I'd experienced that before I came to London. And then obviously uh, Dublin as well. There was a place in Dublin, a hotel called The Kitchen uh, that, that Bono owns. Um, sorry, the hotel's called, what's the hotel called? I can't remember. But there's a club underneath it called The Kitchen. And okay. I used to go there with my sister. I worked in a gay bar called The Front Lounge. And we had a lot of fun they're just going around different different clubs. So I had yeah. Dublin, Belfast and Glasgow. Did you spend some time in, in New York as well? Yes. Yeah. Tell us about that. My 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 second year in university, um, I went to New York and spent an entire summer in New York and um, lived in the East Village in wow. St. Mark's Place. Wow. Lived above an Irish pub and uh, St. Mark's Place is, is, is it's kind of a really legendary street in the yeah. East Village. It's where CBGB's is and where near where Stonewall happened and like all of these really monumental pieces of history and culture. How old were you at this this point? Could you get into clubs? I would have been 20. Okay. Yes, I went to Twilo. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah I went to Twilo, which wow. is amazing. But mostly I went to just random pop-up parties that, you know, it sounds so, so much like a cliche, but they were kind of block parties. So... There was parties on top of the brownstones. You know, you could go up onto the roof and there'd be parties on top of there. Or there'd be parties just kind of outside. Like, there's nowhere else I've been in the world that has parties like New York. So you moved to London. You became a radio producer. Um, I guess this is sort of peak Ministry of Sound period, sort of fabrics beginnings. Well, well, I moved in with my brother's band, and they were a rock band. And they, they, what we, what I did mostly when I moved to London in my early twenties is I went to this rave in East London at at, at music studios, and it wasn't a legal rave. It was, it was kind of just an underground thing where if you knew about it, you were able to go, and. it was like three tiers of floors and there's a basement and then there's a roof that everyone would go up on on smoke. And I went there so often, like every weekend, that was my place that I went. And um, again, had a community of people there that I knew and loved. Um, so I did go clubbing again, but not to the... The obvious big, spots, yeah. Yeah, obvious spots, yeah. yeah. It wasn't until I, I grew up a bit and, and kind of got into my late 20s that I started going properly clubbing. Sure. Were there big contrasts with um, with the clubs that you were used to in Ireland and Glasgow when you were in moved down to London? Yeah, I mean, mostly it was the music. Yeah. Like, when I moved to England first, I went to... Uh, uh, my, my way of getting to England was to do a, a master's, like a postgrad in radio. Right. And I went to a place called Farnborough. This is before London. And that's when UKG was, like, popping off. Right. And, you know flowers at sweet yeah. female attitude all of those those were like big tunes 
And that was not a scene in Belfast. So that was a whole world for me to kind of get my teeth stuck into um, and learn, uh, learn about. So that was my first introduction into kind of UK club music was Garage. Um, and then when I moved to, to London, it was more kind of breakbeat and that kind of stuff. And then, and then I started going to places like um, Plastic People. Mm, R.I.P. But the main club that I'll think of when I was in my late 20s, in terms of bringing you what a club should do is, you know, in terms of exciting music, a real culture, feeling like you're part of something, um, was Yo-Yo. Right. That was like, again, underground, kind of bunker vibe. All sorts of amazing people play there. It's mainly rap music, um, mostly black music. So a lot of kind of MCs would pop down and um, you'd get spontaneous performances from Mark Ronson or yeah. Nas or, you know, yeah. a lot of UK funky. Um, oh, it was, just felt really exciting. And, and, you know, you never know who would pop down there. And there was a lot of fun nights out at Yo-Yo. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've played all over the world. There, mm. what, what cities have really made an impact on you as a person via their nightlife? Belfast, mainly. Also Scotland. Like, whenever I go and play in, in Glasgow, particularly... I feel like, I don't know, I just feel like I'm at home. It's mm. it's really strange in that way. Um, the people are so energetic and so warm. And I don't know, there's a real kind of energy there that you don't get anywhere else. Mm. Um, Ibiza, you know, is a place that I've been going to since for a long time. Mm. I don't know since when, late 20s, I guess. Yeah. And that, I've grown up there. I've done a lot of growing there. I've done a lot of learning there about... Um, about how the industry works. Um, I've had a lot of big moments there professionally. Miami is a place mm, where I, we'll, yeah. I will always hold dear. Like yeah. that is a place where, again, I've had some of the most mad party experiences yeah. of my life. Space, one of my favorite clubs in the world. Space in yeah. Miami. Yeah, I don't think I've been there. Oh, you it's know. fab. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. yeah, they have an amazing um, outdoor terrace room with a sort of semi roof on top. I think it's a attracting roof and all this sort yeah. of foliage all this greenery coming down it's oh, really beautiful I love, I love a bit of foliage oh, an indoor in a, garden, a vertical <laughs> garden in a club can't beat that it's like amnesia the, the old terrace yes. amnesia there was huge trees exactly growing up exactly like i want that. to be around a tree when i'm raving Same. Yeah. the rave around the rave tree <laughs> absolutely what makes um what makes a great venue for you what does the venue mm. need to be great in your mind i'm really like i'm really not up in high-end production like mm. I, I, I i'm not one for an old led screen and all right. that i'm not I'm, I, I like it more i don't know human mm. and less digital so I, i'm all for trees and foliage yeah. i'm um I think that the darker it is, the better mm. in a club. I think especially in 2020, there's way too much uh, weight given to how good things look on Instagram. And sure. I understand from a promoter's perspective, you have to be thinking of that because people want to walk away having told everyone they've been out and having showed everyone they've been out. It's a promotional um, tool, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I get it. You know, as a promoter, as someone who's got a festival, I get you have to kind of cater for that need. But equally, personally, I like a dark room. Sure. I like somewhere where there's no frills, nothing to distract you apart yeah. from the speakers. Going back to shine, people and music. Yeah, it's just experience. about that. Yeah. I do have to say, though, I do like to have somewhere where you can sit and chat right. and make, make friends. Okay. So, like, a nice little area that's yeah. not quite in the center of things where you can go and, like, 
mung out and okay so she needs some darkness have intense and, and conversations yes. i do love an intense conversation yeah. <laughs> at a certain time of the night yeah i think that you sit on that bridge between the underground and the commercial sort of one foot mm. in the underground where you're getting all the white label tracks from kids that the public haven't heard of and then you're you have this opportunity to spread these across to a bigger audience with with Radio yeah. One. So how does it feel to really help elevate the careers of um, underground producers and artists and sort of facilitate breakthroughs? I think, like, I, I, to be really honest, I try not to think about that too much without, 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 obviously you have this underlying awareness and of the responsibility you have to do that. But I, I try not to think too much about... Um, people's careers and and kind of and, and and that because I think it can skewer your view on the music sure and I think the music has to touch you and 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 and, and impact you in a certain way and I try not to have a, a, a many distractions beyond that apart from just a song and you know it's very easy in an industry where you know it, it's how the industry how any industry works there's you know there's kind of big support systems and there's 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 people driving hype and you know whispering things in your ears and, and and all of that and you have to just really try and stick to what's important which is the song sure it's also a clear mission statement of yours to push for equality and diversity as as it is for me as well and the male female mm. ratio um yeah. has always been very off balance on lineups yeah. as a whole as we know why do you think there's traditionally been less female DJs given given the space to make it big I don't know I think I genuinely think that there's less there was less female DJs trying mm. uh, like I think genuinely and I think the reason for that is because they weren't seeing anyone so mm. it's that that's that very old saying of kind of you, you you do what you see so it's kind of the idea if, if you see enough people doing things then that allows you to realize the ambition for yourself if they look like you like Marianne Hobbs doing a specialist underground dance music radio show is the reason why I do one now because I hadn't heard a woman do that. Um, and it wasn't until I did that I thought maybe that's a place that, for me. And I think it's just that's a very simple thing. So, and, you know, there just wasn't any women at the top. Do you think now female DJs are, are getting booked more, are, are promoters doing a better job of yeah. a more balanced yeah, I job? Mean, they have to really, have don't to. they? Yeah, yeah. Because, and if they don't, it's it's a pretty bad look. Yeah. But some, some of them are flagrantly, flagrantly ignoring any responsibility still, um, more in other genres. I think mm. I think the electronic music world has really fixed up and there's a real, a kind of good intention and will to help and push forward female acts and LGBTQ plus acts Absolutely. and acts of color. Yeah. Um, there's a kind of, you know, in dance music, especially that, you know, it's, it was born of, of people who were marginalized, sure. you know, it was born of gay, black, Latino men. Yeah. Um, and it's, and, and obviously a lot of women too, but you, the, the problem is a lot of the women have been written out of history in, when it comes to electronic music. So it's about kind of redressing the balance. And I think electronic music is doing better, but there's still a long, mm. long way to go. But it is possible. And it has been such a joy to watch this kind of huge wave of women come yeah. through, especially in the last five years. I think something shifted 
in the last five years and there's so many female names sure. there. not just DJing but making tunes yeah Nina Peggy these are huge yeah. names now. but even at a lower level because yeah. I think the problem with Nina and Peggy is that y- you can be you can use them and say oh well they they exist it's mm. fine but it's like no they're actually the only headliner and they're the first female in 10 tiers of lines right right you know we need more middle mi- middle of the road not middle of the road but kind of middle tier DJs sure. coming through yeah. So for a while, we only had top tier headliners and then really new. So you need more in the middle. So now we have people like Sally C and Cynthia and High and, yeah. uh, you know, brilliant female DJs and producers coming through. Um, that's really exciting. Unwanted family guests are like fish. They start to stink after three days. So what's the best mattress for them this holiday season? Definitely not a nectar. Then they'll never leave. Flip those fish your old mattress and put your human body on a Nectar. Prices start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. A fresher deal than your mackerel mother-in-law, right? Go to Nectarsleep.com today. Did you know you can get all your favorite fall drinks delivered right to your door? Well, you can with Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. Compare prices across your local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. Right now, Drizzly is giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code FALL5 at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. Do you think you've experienced sexism um, firsthand in the industry? No, not right. firsthand, not to my face. Right. I don't think I have. And listen, I'm sure I have behind my back. And I'm sure there's been decisions made on account of my gender that I don't know about. But no sexism to my face. Like I I remember back, I think it was back in 2011, before this argument of gender became very loud and very normalized. Um, I remember emailing a bunch of kind of peers, people who promote festivals and kind of saying I want you to look at this lineup that you've just sent me and asked me to be on and you know in the first 11 rows of names there's no woman right can you not see a problem in that and then there's always excuses it was like well we tried and this and this and this and this and uh, so I, I think like people uh I don't know maybe maybe they were giving out about me behind my back back then I don't know but I, I haven't experienced anything like initially when I became a DJ at the start, I really vividly remember there was a real curiosity around me and who I was because of my gender. And I remember the the, the, the people would come and there would be a lot of just staring. <laughs> just because um, you were a well, female. Well, yeah, just like, can she do it? Daring do to it? DJ. Yeah. <laughs> and like a lot of like kind of chin stroking, just watching. Right. You know? And and then it became women, just loads of girls in the front rows. And, and, and that's what everyone remarked on that. All the promoters remarked on that, that wherever I went, I brought girls because they obviously enjoyed seeing someone that looked like them on stage. Um, so that was a really cool thing. Mm. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't experienced sexism firsthand. I'm very lucky to say that. Mm. I understand that. It's, it's yeah. mad to think, obviously, both of us champion diversity and equality. It's just mad to think that there was a boys club to break through. I mean, it's just. But there still make... is a boys' club to yeah, break through. Yeah, right. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Like, there's no women in the boardrooms. Right. This is the problem. It's still a huge boys' club. Right. That need that. There's a lot of work to be done when yeah. it comes to that. 
I want to talk to you about the changes in nightlife and um, mm. as our technology and social behaviour progress. Do you think that smartphones and the rise of social media have taken anything away from nightlife scenes? Are we, how much has been sort of spoilt by that? I wouldn't say scenes as such. Like the, the idea of tribes in, in general, like that's a huge conversation because tribal tribalism has it has really decreased as a there's a deficit i think in in that place you know there's no such thing as genres and categories in music anymore because you have spotify you know people can listen to taylor swift and then they can go and listen to trippy red and to them that's all the same thing i know this from radio and research you know there's no such thing as genres anymore kids don't give a sh- shit about that right so that's really interesting so they don't represent a certain tribe when it comes to music like they used to um and that's that that means that you know when it when it, when there's scenes they're not as kind of strong when it comes to identity there's a lot more blurred edges um but when it comes to clubbing um obviously there's still certain types of clubs people go to and, and people go to clubs to hear a certain type of music be it kind of tech house or drum and bass or whatever um so you'll get a certain type of person i don't think that the social media does anything detrimental to that side of things, to tribes or, or to scenes. It's more just to the actual reality of what's happening at the time on the night. Do you think we're connecting less? Yeah. Mm. It's not that we're connecting less. We're connecting more, but just via emojis. Right. And via WhatsApp and Snapchat and all of that. But the actual human connection, the human uh that that kind of alchemy that happens between a human and another human when they connect when their eyes lock when when you know that that's happening less and less because there's always a phone in the middle there's always a screen getting in the way there's this extra layer of um uh, of distraction getting in the way and you see it from the stage like I was talking to Dave, the rapper Dave, because he, he has got a new song called Children of the Internet, all about the internet and the effect of that on a new generation. And he, we were talking about when you're on stage and you have a crowd and they hold up their phones. Now I've Because he's young, he's only ever had that, but I have seen it because I'm an old person, it changed. So, and even T says it like, when you DJ in his culture, you do a, you do a, you do a reload. So you pull a record back and you start it again. That's part of the culture of, of, of how he DJs. But he says now when you when you get a reload, it people you know that people want to reload not because of the noise or the hands in the air, but because of the amount of lights that you see from phones. Wow. So, it's so that there's a new way of a crowd communicating a message to the DJ, and right. it's through them wanting to record the moment on their phone. Wow. And you see that so much more, like at the big moments, like when I played Midnight at Whereas Project in 2019. Was that this year? Yeah, I think it was this year. Um, you just see like it's just as far as the eye can see, twinkling lights of phones. And, and that's how you know that the audience are into it and then you look back at the insta stories you know when you're tagged in and it's literally just like all you can hear is <laughs> and it's just like dark and chaotic and you see this tiny little blob on stage which is me it's like re- really what's redundant yeah what's yeah. the point yeah turn around and hug your mates do you think that people are sort of less inclined to lose themselves in in the moment a bit more as well like yes. I mean, even in terms of like getting off their faces because there's, there's evidence on the phone 
Oh my God, exactly. You are, you are, you are never not accountable for your actions anymore. You're, th there's always going to be a way to, to, uh, to, to kind of document your whole evening, even if you don't do it on your phone, on other people's phones, on Uber histories, everywhere. You know, you're going to always know what your night out was and what you did. And you're always going to know what you look like because most people will end up in some sort of photo or tagged somewhere along the night. There's definitely a, a much needed uh, situation where there's more clubs out there who understand the significance and the detriment of phones to how their customers would experience an evening and who will say, right, you can either, you can either have your phone, but there's no, no photo rule. Like there used to be an output in New York. It's a great thing. Couldn't take photos on your phone. Couldn't hold your phone up. I think the Bergheim so, has that as well. Well, Bergheim, I think they take your whole phone. Right. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you hand your or phone stickers, in at the stickers door. on your camera on the phone or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, maybe it's that. Yeah. But it's so so it's kind of that idea of like allowing the customer to basically be really 100% there in the moment, in the present, experiencing the music in that way. Um, allowing them to experience connection like we used to do back in the day. And, you know, I can also see the counter argument to that where people are like, fuck you, actually. I want to have my phone. Like, sure. This is a social moment it. with my friends. Yeah, yeah. it's 2020. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. So I do see that. Yeah. But if you have clubs that have that policy, people can go and f as a novelty experience it. Yeah. I think it's really important. Definitely. Do you get to go to other people's clubs much? Do you get to go out much? Obviously, in normal circumstances, yeah. different this year. Do you know what? I, I haven't been going out in the last kind of five years nearly as much as I used to. I've got really into staying in and really enjoying staying in. And going out, because my job entails going out and DJing, I'm kind of always aware that I'm going to have these nights out that I can love and enjoy and have friends at. So I kind of save my going out for my gigs and I make sure that I accept gigs to places that I really want to play with people I really want to see. Sure. Um, and that's how I do it. Otherwise, I just go for dinners. I yeah, dinner. yeah, absolutely. Mm. Do you have lots of friends all over the world that you, you roll with a big crew when you're in town? Well, I, I used to be that. Yeah. Again, when I used to tour, tour America a lot and tour Australia and stuff in my early 30s, you would have a situation where anywhere you went, be it DC or LA or Toronto, you'd have people that you know from the clubs and you'd have friendly faces that you could go and have dinner with. And a few of them have stuck around, definitely. So we've been in um, we've been in lockdown, obviously, but you have a rave shed at the end of your garden. Yeah. Can you tell us about yeah. the rave shed? I've seen it on your well, on your socials. It's, yeah, it's just like a, a a kind of garden office thing, and um, it's got my decks in it. It's got all my records in it. It's got loads of drawers full of random wires and plugs and USB uh, connector things. US, and... all of that <laughs> stuff, and um, it's got a sofa and a desk, and it's where I've it's where I work yeah. basically. Yeah. But because it's where the decks are, it's also where you end up just going and trying out records yeah. and getting in the mix. And, and you did some streams, um, didn't you, through lockdown? Did some streams, really enjoyed that. Also had, like, when we were allowed to have people over in that, remember we had, there was the garden rule when you were allowed to yeah. have, have, so we had a lot of people over, not a lot, but enough people over with the fire pit 
outside the rave shed and have music bump in. Nice, nice. So it's really nice little space actually outside of the house where you can go and it's soundproofed and yeah. you can like really turn it off. Don't piss off the neighbours. How do you feel that streaming um, has worked as a media format in lockdown? Obviously, you can't quite replicate the nightclub experience, but... yeah. I mean, I think dance music is is, is a really progressive culture. It, you know, we're very adaptable, and you know, you could see that dance music. You know, the we were the first ones to really just quickly adapt and say, okay, we'll just stream from home. And I think it it, it was good for the DJs to have an outlet, and and it was good for the the music makers to see their music still being played and to be able to tag their records and mixes. And so it kind of it it kind of kept the the ball rolling a little bit in that sense. Um, I guess we've, we had boiler room and stuff before anyway, so we were sort of used to seeing the nightlife experience always. on screen, yeah. Yeah, but it's different when there's no one in the room, isn't it? Like, when there's no one there, it's kind of like, I mean, there was a kind of trend, wasn't there, of like, okay, I'm going to do a stream in the craziest place I can, at the top of a tower, yeah. on a bridge. It was <laughs> yeah. like, right, how far can we push DJ streaming? Totally. You know, how good can my view be? Yeah, totally, um, yeah, yeah. But, um yeah, I mean, I think I think there's just a kind of there was just a desperation, wasn't there, for people, especially DJs, when you live this kind of nomadic life where you're never really plugged in to one place and you're used to moving around all the time and you're used to playing to people and like going from that to nothing, it's hard psychologically to have to stay in one place and kind of really just look in the mirror for the first time. <laughs> it's a lot of people doing that and I think if if there's DJs who are able to just do streams and kind of keep that part of their life active then I think more power to them as a creative outlet yeah yeah yeah. I feel like the government um isn't really taking nightlife as seriously as they could as in in terms of as a necessary and profitable Mm. industry um obviously it contributes a huge amount of money um to the economy how do you feel about how do you feel about that well, I think that um, they have given a load of money over, haven't they? They, they just have, yeah. And yeah. there's been a bit of controversy over uh, who got the money and who got the share of the money sure, and all yeah. that. But yeah. they are giving, they, I mean, I think they've, they've they've been shouted at a lot. And um, the truth is that, the you know, the nightlife industry provides billions of pounds to the UK economy every year. And they've been left high and dry. I know there was that big Rishi Sunak quote that everyone quoted and, he was actually totally misquoted. If you go and look on his website or ITV's website, they had to do a public apology to say, sorry, that he was misquoted. He didn't mean people from the music industry or the arts industry. He meant people in general. But even then, it's kind of, it's. I think there's a general sense from the music industry that our jobs are not taken seriously, that they're not put in the same um, kind of set place of credence as, you know, a lawyer or a doctor they're not deemed useful. They're deemed a luxury. Yeah. The government is being forced to really assess how people stay motivated and positive in, in, in a place, in a world that is, feels like it's falling apart. And, and they're being forced to admit that, like, actually the arts is crucial. Crucial. Like, you look at radio, you look at Radio 1 and how significant that became um, for people to be able to feel like they were part of this kind of collective feeling and how music can be such a healer like I really saw it firsthand throughout lockdown the the kind of power of music as a as a healing Mm. thing yeah what does clubbing look like post-covid to you 
Oh God, I'm just really fascinated by what's going to happen. Like, I actually met Saul from Chasing Status in our local park walking the dog and we had a deep one and he was talking about his idea is that people, when it opens again, when everything opens, people are just going to want to have, they're going to want to hear artists that they know and that they trust. There's going to be a real sense of nostalgia around just, I just want to hear the song that I know and love and I want to hear it with my friends in a field or whatever. So what I'm worried about is that all these people that were on the up or kind of, kind of, mid mid midway up are now going to be pushed back down when and, and all the big old names are going to come up and 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 um get the gigs initially um so i don't know i i worry about those mid-level bands who's who's an, an artist whose whole livelihood is based on live mm. um and i worry that rather than those people getting the break that they need when we open again they might not what about a more DIY approach to clubbing as well, do you think? Yeah, I think that will happen. I think people, um, you know, there's a huge system in place when it comes to live events in the UK. It's It all comes from one top spot and then it trickles down and, and that's how it works. And um, when those big, big, big companies are, are, are put in jeopardy and, and then there's finally room. They're, they don't have the energy to eat everyone up again. They don't have the energy to buy all the small companies. So suddenly there's space and there's room for new promoters to come up and, and do things. And they have had all this time and all this space to think about something they really want to do. And that's when things get really interesting. And also people are skint. They yeah. can't afford big festival tickets. They can't afford, you know, they want to go somewhere local and pay a tenner and yeah. have an amazing night. Not yeah. have to pay 90 quid for yeah. A weekend or, you know, more like 250 quid yeah. for a weekend a lot of the time. I hope a lot of the venues um, do survive, a lot of the smaller venues that perhaps didn't Me get too. help. Yeah. I know. Well, they're, they're, they're kind of going, they were going anyway, yeah. you know, for other reasons beyond COVID. Luxury flats and licensing laws and, and all of that. So you could see one by one, you could see them going. So, I, I mean, what we have to hope is that is that this will shine a spotlight on the importance of nightlife and those small venues that were in jeopardy are now going to get support hopefully from either a local communities or the should be the government obviously but it's it's kind of the idea that we've zoomed in on them and we're aware of their plight and and hopefully they could be saved Okay, let's move on to something lighter. Okay. <laughs> um, you've got one of the best record collections that I can think of. What do you play um, if the dance floor is feeling like it's drying up a bit? Like, what's your what's your save the night record? It all depends on what gig it is. Um, I would always say something... I mean, it, it very much depends, but it, in the gigs that I play, there's, you know, a kind of... Something disco-y, something that has that kind of joy and euphoria of, of of big strings and and um something that people might recognize be it a sample or you know a top line um it, it just it, it just depends like the gigs that I play are so varied um my favorite gig to play is kind of a a gig where you could play you know the Jackson sisters or a Stevie Wonder or something really authentic and old um not a version of the actual real thing um so that would be a kind of go-to 
save save the dance floor situation. Okay. What's on your rider when you're DJing? It's varied over the years, but over at the time, it's a a large bottle of vodka. It's a um, couple of bottles of red wine, uh, beers, Nurofen Plus. Oh, good one. Really good one. For the morning um, after. Mm-hmm. What a Baraka. smart idea. Oh. Baraka's a good one, yeah. Um, and then, I mean, it goes to, uh, there's a lot of vegan vegan snacks, Marks and Spencer salads. Lovely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> various cereal bars, grapes, that kind of thing. Yeah. But the, the Neurofen Plus and the Baraka really, they really saved me. Yeah. Do you tend to get to a club early and spend a lot of time in there before you walk on stage? No. It depends on the night. Again, like if it's a night where I know the promoters and I love the night and I have friends there, yeah. we definitely go down early and hang out. Yeah. So like a like but, a warehouse project, you'll you'll be there all night, for example. I would go down early, yeah, yeah definitely. Good up. We've got a mutual it. friend in Rich McGuinness. Yeah, yeah, yeah amazing. Yeah. So I would always go down, see see Rich, who's a friend, and see a lot of the time with warehouse projects that Animat presents nights anyway. So you want to go and show face and make sure that you've said hello to everyone and you're booking them because you're fans. So yeah. you want to go and see them play. So yeah, those nights are so fun. Yeah, so fun. and I always stay over when I do warehouse projects. I don't not. I don't often stay over anymore. I always kind of drive back through the night and get home. Right, at right. six or seven in the morning. But warehouse project, I like to stay over and that's and, a weekend away. Well, also because I have my show, I don't really get there till midnight, one o'clock. So you want to, you want to, you can't just go there and then leave at you know three in the morning. You've got to, you've got to stick it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you could visit a club from the past, what would it be? Hmm. Uh, Paradise Garage. Oh, why? Larry Larry Levan, Absolutely. Rice, yeah. Just to go and watch. Apparently, an incredible sound system. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that one. I think New York clubbing has definitely been some of the most eye-opening and transformative clubbing for me. And th- a lot of that is because of the melting pot that New York is. Anyway, the mix of people that you will get on a dance floor in New York is unparalleled. I think anywhere else in the world. So, I love that. I love meeting people and connecting with people. So, Um, if you're throwing a party, you can invite three guests on the Mm -hmm. guest list. Who would they be? Living or dead? Oh my God, babe. (laughs) How do you do this to me? Maybe I should have pre-warned you about that question. Um, (laughs) Phil Linnett, who's the lead singer of an Irish rock band called Thin Lizzy. Okay. Um, Maybe Grace Jones. Why? Why? I mean, I know why, but why... (laughs) (laughs) She'd be on mine as well. She'd be outrageous. Yeah, yeah. You want someone who's outrageous because as soon as you have one person who's outrageous, everyone's like, fuck it. Let's be outrageous too. And that's what partying should be. It should be about being completely uninhibited in all of ways and just allowing yourself to be open to any sort of feelings. Um, Sarah, Sarah Cox. Oh. Yeah, she's she's like friends for decades and is one of the funnest party companions that exists nice and i think um i think that we'd have a great time who's the dj who have you booked they're playing benji all b. night oh benji b's benji playing b. all night benji b benji b played at our wedding um i mean we had a lot of djs play at our wedding party but he, he was one of them and and he kind of gets it in terms of the scope of the music that i'd want i'd want someone who could play all the right music from yo-yo all the right funky music and and kind of like uk club music as well as classic old soul and disco as well as knowing all the right dance records there's not that many people with the breadth that i would trust 
and he is that guy. Nice. He is that guy. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I want to come to that party. Okay, fun. please come. I will. I will. Put me down. <laughs> Annie Mac, this has been your life of the party. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Now I want to go raving. Oh, I know. This is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, darling. This has been Life of the Party with me, Jodie Harsh. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you haven't subscribed just yet, please do. There's a new episode every week. Right, see you at the next party. Imagine if you could shop the shelves of all your local liquor stores at the same time. Well, spoiler alert, you can with Drizzly, the number one alcohol delivery app. Drizzly lets you compare prices from local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your door in under 60 minutes. And right now, Drizzly is giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code SAVE5 at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com.